Hello everyone, this is Pastor Haley Ratliff from Agape House in the wild and wonderful Hinton, West Virginia. Um, today I want to talk to you about um, a subject that has just been so um, embedded in my spirit and I, I cannot get away from the word compromise. So today I want to talk to you about compromise and at what cost. Um, the way this came about was the, the, the past several months, I've been traveling a lot for work, which is good for me because it gives me the opportunity to get out of my house. As many of you know, I work from home, and because I work from home, I, I don't normally get out of my house very much. Um, I, I kind of live in this bubble. So when, when I'm able to get out and I'm able to travel, it affords me the opportunity to really fellowship with the people I work with and to have conversation and really listen to the things that are important to them. While I was in Indiana, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to go to dinner with my boss and her, her son who's come on as a team member and our operations manager. And as we sat there at dinner, um, I was just listening and the conversation had very many twists and turns in it, but the, the operations manager started talking about um, the energy or the atmosphere in the, the office there. And um, I can attest that um, uh, from being there many, many times and, and spending a week here or two weeks there, that there is not always a godly presence in that office. And so as she was talking, she was sharing about one of the agents that we have who likes to worship Satan. And um, some of that realm that's in there comes from her she doesn't work in the office anymore and um so the ops manager was talking about getting the sage out and burning it and trying to get the bad juju out of there and i'm i'm just at this point listening to the conversation and um my my boss's son didn't want to hear anything about demons or the satanic realm and um, because that scared him and he's a very godly young man. And, and actually, the, the three people sitting at dinner with me are godly people, but their, their spiritual relationships are on different levels. And so, then the operations manager proceeds to talk about how there's good witches and there's bad witches. And the icing on the cake of the conversation came when she said, you know, Haley, a little tarot card reading was never bad for anyone. So as I sat there and I listened to that, I thought, am I going to say anything or am, am I just going to sit here because I don't want to rock the boat or stir the waters? And my boss is looking at me and she's smiling and, and finally I just had to, had to address a few things. And I said, first of all, we cannot fear the enemy. We don't worship the enemy. We don't give him any accolades, but we need to know our enemy and what he's capable of. The second thing is, 
If you want to get rid of whatever is in the office, you need to get your anointing oil out and start praying and uh, forget about the sage. And the third thing is there's no good witches. A witch is a witch. We have two masters. We serve one or we serve the other. And lastly, a little tarot card reading was never good for anyone. And I said to her, Crystal, I know this woman is your friend, but what she's doing is demonic, and you need to point her in the right direction and speak truth to her. And if she does not listen to you, quite frankly, I don't see where you could be friends with her anymore. You can love her and you can pray for her, but you cannot continue to commune with her. And it was at that point that I really understood that there was compromise there. And unfortunately, compromise is becoming more and more frequent as we walk our spiritual paths. So today, and, and that was the word. That was the word I could not get out of my spirit. I couldn't shake that conversation. I couldn't get the word compromise out of my head or out of my spirit. And the more I thought about it and the more I meditated on it, the more I realized that it really is a timely word, not only for the church, but also for us as saints. Because if we're all very honest with ourselves and we reflect back, we have lost saints that we all love dearly because they compromised. You know, I've heard it said, and it's true, that compromise is the cancer of the church and that we have to rid, rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, we cannot ever compromise on our principles. If we don't take a stand, if we don't keep our standards, we merely shift to satisfy whatever's going on in society. And so the passage of scripture that... I want to talk about right now is Revelation 2 12 through 17 and this is what it says and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges I know thy works and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in, a sto and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. So, let's take a look at the church of Ephesus. Now, that was a church that was considered very doctrinally sound, but it had lost its first love. And we all know that 
that our first love is Christ. The church at Smyrna was a suffering church. But, but for this teaching and for our purpose, I want to look at the church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum was, was a compromising church. And what we want to look at is what led to their succumbing to the pressures from the outside? What was behind their lowering of their defenses to allow the world to enter in? And actually, those are, those are two questions that I had. And we might never know the actual answers to those questions, but what we can do is look at their example and learn from it. So a little history on Pergamum. It was situated about 50 miles northeast of Smyrna. It wasn't nearly as large as either Ephesus or Smyrna, but it had something that they didn't have. So this city was where the Roman Empire met to make decisions. Ephesus was sort of the New York of the Roman Empire. Smyrna was the Chicago of the Roman Empire. And Pergamum was sort of the Washington, D.C. of the Roman Empire. So it was the center cog for the Romans' operation. And interestingly enough, it was also the seat of Satan, which, which is clearly written in this passage in Revelations. So Satan has often used two tactics to render the church powerless. The first tactic is that he persecutes the church and the second is that he seduces it. So most often, at least with true believers, persecution hasn't always worked. A lot of times it backfires on the enemy and it, it tended to make the church much stronger and purer. So it, it's like a fire melting away the dross and refining uh, metal. The church is often made purer that way. And this can clearly be seen in areas where persecution has been heavy over the years, such as um, the former Soviet Union and other areas in Western Europe. Those places, the church is very strong and very pure because it means something to be a, um, a Christian or a believer in a place where it actually costs you something. The other tactic that Satan likes to use that is much more subtle and normally much more effective is that he doesn't attack us from without, but he actually lulls us to sleep from within. Um, the name Pergamus means height or elevation and was a fitting name for the city, which was built at an eva uh, elevation of about a thousand feet. Pergamus is believed to have been founded by the Aeolian Greeks around 1150 BC, and it was considered to be the most impregnable city, to it, um, city due to its height and the fortifications that surrounded it. Pergamos was also famous for its temples, the most prominent of was the Temple of Zeus. It was dedicated to Asculapius, the serpent god of healing, and it, it, the cultic worship of Ascul Asculapius P 
P.S. incorporated snakes in healing rituals. And if you ever see the pins or the um, icon for the medical profession, that's that's what that icon is. Um, it's a uh, an, an and an actual living serpent was kept within the precincts of the temple as an object of worship. So Jesus <coughs> tells the church at Pergamos that he knows their condition, the condition in which they're living in. He begins by telling them that he knows that they hold fast to his name and that they have not denied his faith. Even in the midst of the most awful pagan worship, the Christians at Pergamos had managed to keep their faith um, unsullied by the prevailing idolatry that was going on in that city. They, they held fast to the name of Jesus and they didn't deny their faith. Now this would have been would not have been an easy task. Like most Greco-Roman cities, Pergamos was known for its wealth, its literacy, and pagan philosophy. So the ability to retain biblical purity in a world that was full of this kind um, of sophisticated error would have been impossible, nearly. But Jesus said that there's, there were those in the church at Pergamos who had managed to do that, and they managed to do it very well. It's not as impossible as we might believe to retain spiritual purity in the midst of spurious error. I mean, there are people that have managed to do that in, in the world that we live in here in the United States. It might be hard, but it is certainly not impossible. All it takes is a conscious choice on our part. We always have options. We always have a choice. Spiritual growth is a choice. We are never without an option to do what is right. Now, there may be an associated cost, but there's always an option. We just need God to give us the wisdom and to the discernment to recognize those options. The message to the church at Pergamos is thought to refer to the period of church history spanning from 313 to 538 AD. And this was the time when the church began to compromise its belief and to allow paganism to sneak into its ranks. The subtle shifts begin under the authority of the Emperor Constantine. During this time, the church chose to turn away, turn away from simple faith and to substitute Bible truth with pagan traditions and rituals under a, a seismic shift in thinking. The very fabric of the church changed from poverty-stricken persecution and ragtag slaves to opulence, wealth, and influence. It, it was the death knell to spirit, spirituality and a profound fellowship with Jesus. But even though there were those who had managed to cling to their faith in the midst of pagan philosophy, there were those who were walking perilously close to the edge. Those who were using this line between truth and error as a skipping rope. One of the errors that had crept into the church at Pergamos was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which the Ephesian church had so readily rejected. However, the Pergamum church 
embraced it. So within Pergamum, you had some that held the name of Jesus, you had some that held the name of Balaam, and you had some that held the name of the Nicolaitans. The teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are closely related, if not identical. Immorality and idolatry were distinctive characteristics of these false teachers as well. Theologically, they were antinomians, libertarians, and an antinomian holds that under the gospel dispensation of grace, the moral law is of no use or obligation because faith alone is necessary to salvation. Now we know this is is not this is not true, but but that's the road they were traveling on. So the doctrine mattered very little and their behavior mattered even less. So with each passing day, the distinction between the church and the world became more blurred and it became less clear. The lifestyle of one was barely distinguishable from the other. Worldliness, compromise, and tolerance had rushed into this church like a flood and she was literally on the verge of drowning. In other words, so the Nicolaitans essentially taught that compromise between Christianity and Greco-Roman culture was actually possible, that you could blend the two. So in other words, you could engage in these pagan rituals and you could embrace parts of the pagan philosophy while still embracing Christianity. And um, W.M. Ramsey made this quote about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This school of thought and conduct played an important part in the church of the first century. It affected most of the well-to-do classes in the church. Those who had most temptation to retain all that they could of the established social order and customs of the Greco-Roman world and who by their more elaborate education had, had been trained to take an artificial view of life. Jesus compares this philosophy to the doctrine of Balaam, who led the children of Israel into sin and idolatry through the compromise in the wilderness. So now we're going <clears> to <throat> veer off a little bit, and we're going to go to 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, this is what it says. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this way, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So let's look at the example of Balaam so we can understand. You have someone there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and so that they might practice sexual immorality. So Balaam, Balaam is a spiritualist or a medium. And King Balak of Moab 
had heard that the Israelites were coming, so not to be defeated like the others, he hired Balaam to actually come and curse the Israelites. Balaam, being an agent of Satan, recognizes the power of God and claimed that he would only do what God would allow. So, for no amount of money would he do anything contrary to God's will. I find this extremely interesting. For three times, we all know that Balaam was to curse the Israelites, and three times God caused him to bless them. The third time, Balaam even goes so far as to prophesy to Balak that Israel would defeat the Moabites. And so, this enrages King Balak. So before Balaam leaves, he tells the king how to defeat the Israelites. He says to the king that the Israelites could very easily be seduced into pagan worship and into pagan sexual morality, and when this happens, God would curse them. Therefore, you would win. So in Numbers 31.16, it says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So in all likelihood, I'm thinking there were those in the first century church who, like Balaam, told the Roman government how they could beat the Christians. There's always a spy, there's always a traitor. So like Balaam, who wanted the praise of men, these leaders preached God's word sometimes, and then other times wanted desperately to fit in with the popular vote. So they caused the Christians to sin. They wanted the Christians to like them, but they also wanted the secular world to like them, and in so doing, they brought God's curse to the church. These were deceivers within the church, like Balaam, who did some things right, but really loved money and power more. These in the church were causing the church to lose God's favor. The church was about to receive the curse from her Lord because she was literally whoring with the world as Balaam caused the Israelites to do. So in verse 5 of Numbers, verse 25 in, in Numbers 31, it says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. At the end of the day, it was the money and power that Balaam was after. He sold the Israelites for a day's fame. Many thousands of the Israelites died when God's judgment came. And this happened at least in part due to Balaam's advice. It's all right to take foreign women and worship their gods. 
nothing's going to happen. A little sin is okay. Don't worry. If it feels right, go ahead and do it. You're not hurting anyone. If you really love someone, then it's okay. 24,000 people died because of that plague. That plague. It goes on to say that Balaam, the son of Beor, was killed by the sword. I find it very fitting and ironic at the same time that Balaam was put to death, it was by the sword. So, Jesus is now urging the church at Pergamos to distance themselves from this heresy and embrace simple and pure biblical truth. The words of counsel that Jesus has for the church of Pergamos are cutting and concise. Repent, or else I'm going to come to you quickly and I'm going to fight against you with the sword of my word. The issues that are, are at stake are biblical. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, and if the church at Pergamos refused to repent, Jesus himself would engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat through the medium of his sword, his word. Now the core issue at Pergamos was that they were drifting away from the scriptures and mingling biblical truth with human tradition and philosophy. So Jesus tells them not to do that. Culture and tradition have their place, but not when they are at cross purposes with the word of God. The word of God trumps every other consideration. It is the foundation of our faith and doctrine. The only rule that a Christian should live by and Pergamos was drifting away from this anchor. Jesus' words are very simple. Repent, change your direction, turn around. Because we always have to remember that your direction will always determine your destiny. If the church at Pergamos is willing to repent, Jesus promises them three things. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now each one of these is significant. So let's look at the manna. What is manna? What is the significance of this? Manna was bread from heaven that was rained down on the children of Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It provided for their physical needs and it also sustained them through the long journey. Jesus says to us in John 6.35 that he's the bread of life. <clears throat> if we're willing to overcome the temptation to compromise, the first reward we receive is the opportunity to feed on Jesus, to enter into deep and meaningful communion with him that will sustain us on every level, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The second promise to the overcomers of Pergamos is a white stone. This is an interesting illusion. Judges and Pergamos used white and black stones when passing down their judgments. White symbolized acquittal and black symbolized condemnation. 
A white stone to the overcomer is the promise of a clean slate by the judge of all the earth. The promise of second chances and new beginnings. The third promise to the overcomers was the promise of a new name. And I really love what this means. I think it's magnificent. In the ancient world and in the Old Testament, to know someone's name, especially that of God, often meant that you would enter into a very intimate relationship with that person and that you would also share in that person's character or power. To be given a new name was an indication of a new status. So therefore, the believer's reception of this name represents that their final reward of consummate identification and unity with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom and under his sovereign authority. That, that's a magnificent thing in and of itself. The new name is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed without which entry into the, the eternal city of God is impossible. It stands in contrast to the satanic name that believers receive which identifies them with the character of the devil and with the ungodly city of man. I think this is interesting because a lot of times people in the church are willing to compromise because they need to feel they need they have the need to feel relevant it's important to them to be part of a specific group um, of people it's important to them to belong to the right country club it's important to them to live in a big house and have lots of money Um, it's important to them to be seen or to be heard um a lot of those inner things that are twisted in people will cause them to crom- compromise. And it, it it's interesting to me that the devil copies the name and that the ungodly will be named by the enemy but that they will belong to the city of man. Why would you compromise being part of the community of the redeemed? In my opinion, that is more important and that membership is more valuable than belonging to the right country club or being seen and being heard. At the beginning of this teaching, I told you that Pergamum was where Satan's throne was. In my research on this topic, I found the most interesting information about the altar of Zeus. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and share that here. So we know that the ancient city of Pergamon or Pergamon was the center of the pagan worship in Asia Minor. This once thriving city laid forgotten and in ruins until 1864 when a German engineer by the name of Karl Hulman began excavating it. And he found one of antiquity's greatest monuments. 
he actually found the altar of Zeus. So he excavates the altar and he takes it stone by stone to Berlin where it was reassembled in its own museum. Now at this time, Pergamum must, must have been part of the Turkish Empire because the Turkish government agreed that the ancient foundation that was um, excavated uh, became the property of Germany. So in 1930, the Pergamum Museum was open to the public in Germany. Now, a few years later, the Nazi Party's chief architect, Albert Speer, was commissioned by the new chancellor, Adolf Hitler, to design the parade grounds for the party rallies in Nuremberg. So Speer turns to the Pergamum altar for inspiration. He uses the altar as a model, and Speer created a colossal grandstand known as the Zeppelin Tribune, in the following years, mass rallies are held and Hitler descends down the steps like a, like a tribune in ancient Rome. So most of the Nuremberg rallies were held at night. This grandstand was surrounded by 150 searchlights and the light columns extended for a mile in the sky and it created this mystical effect that Hitler wanted. This effect was known as the Cathedral of Lights. So inside the rally grounds, thousands of Nazi party members marched in torchlight parades. From the altar's podium, Hitler would mesmerize the crowds as they swore a holy oath to Germany. Um, from 1933 to 1938, hundreds of thousands of Germans would gather at the field every September but the 1934 rally is the one that actually captured the attention of the world because of the, tr the the film Triumph of the Will this was a propaganda documentary about Hitler and the Nazi party so in this film Hitler is portrayed like a messiah who descended down the clouds to the faithful waiting for him below this film was actually shown continuously for 12 years in Germany. After the film's release, Hitler's popularity skyrocketed, skyrocketed so that more than a million Germans came to Nuremberg to hear this speech in the following September rally. This is the interesting part. On that evening of September 15, 1935, Hitler announced the Nuremberg Laws the laws of the protection of German blood and German honor was intended to begin the marginalization process of the Jewish people. These new laws actually stripped the Jews of their rights as citizens and then the Reich citizenship law was introduced and this stated that Jewish people in Germany were subjects of the Reich but they were no longer citizens. It's also in Nuremberg that Hitler used the phrase final solutions for the first time in public. Hitler's final solution is known as the Holocaust, a word that comes from a Greek word meaning a holy burnt animal sacrifice. I had no idea that's what that meant. 
On the ancient altar of Zeus and Pergamum, burnt sacrifice was practiced. Centuries later, in German's Nuremberg, in the redesigned Pergamum altar, Hitler announced his final solution to the world, and this time, the burnt sacrifice was six million Jews. This is where we are in time. History always repeats itself. We must guard what we know to be true and stand firm on the word of God. We cannot waver. We cannot compromise for any reason. Compromise is one of Satan's favorite and most effective weapons. I'm going to give you four reasons why he's so effective at it. Number one, it never occurs quickly so you hardly notice the change. Number two, it always lowers the original standard you once held precious. Number three, it is seldom offensive because it is perceived as loving. And number four, it eventually leads you to accept what you once thought repulsive. Let's remember, Satan not only managed to turn seven high-ranking angels against God, but also convinced them to leave with him. He's cunning and he's seductive. We need to make sure that our discernment is on point. Compromise comes in so many forms from one end of the spectrum to the other. When my children were young, they had a hard time growing up here because I was the mother who would not allow a lot of things based on my spiritual beliefs. One of those things was my children were not allowed to participate in Halloween. They weren't allowed to go trick-or-treating. They weren't allowed to dress up. They weren't allowed to do any of that. Instead, I taught them the origins and the meaning of Halloween. They also weren't allowed to watch Harry Potter. My belief is that Hollywood is very in tune with the demonic realm. If they're speaking incantations in a movie, that is not something I want being spoken into my home. I was laughed at by other parents, but I didn't care. You see, there was a time in my life when I served Satan very well. I know who he is, and I know what he's capable of. I understand consent in the spirit realm, and there was no way I was going to give him consent to enter my home or my children. I refused to compromise my beliefs so that my children could fit in. My children survived their childhood, and I could still care less what people in this town think of my spiritual beliefs. That might sound cold, and I don't mean it to be that way, but this is how we have to take a stand, in love, or we're going to be doomed. We walk a very, very thin path. The veil between light and darkness is so very thin. We must not waver, or we take the chance of winding up on the other side of the veil without even knowing we're there. Compromise never works. By its nature, it's indecisive and shifty. We're living in Pergamum, but we don't have to become part of it. I hope this ministers to you. God bless you all. 
I'm sending love and abundant blessing from West Virginia.